The following is a conversation with John Warner IV, the son of retired Senator John Warner III, former Secretary of the Navy and Chairman of the Armed Services Committee, and also a Knight of the British Empire. John Warner's mother is Catherine Mellon, banking heiress and daughter of philanthropist Paul Mellon, who was also a Knight of the British Empire and a member of the Office for Strategic Services, or OSS. John Warner is also the third cousin to the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence for Intelligence, Christopher Mellon, and he says that growing up in a family that had a seat at many of the most historically significant tables led to his insatiable quest to find and reveal hidden truths behind world events. An avid researcher of revisionist or alternative history, Warner began writing this book series during a two-year-long recovery from a racing car accident. His extensive research for Little Anton evolved into a gripping historical narrative that reveals hidden truths about technological advancements and prominent leaders active in the World War II era, including Adolf Hitler, Heinrich Himmler, Ferdinand Porsche, and Winston Churchill. Part love story and part satire, the book centres on Hitler's use of Porsche's brilliant engineering mind to build the world's fastest machines, and the occultism of the SS to further new advanced weapons of the Wunderwaffe. John and his wife Tabor split their time between their Washington DC area residence and their Virginia farm, where he is finishing the sequel to Little Anton, titled Lion, Tiger, Bear. In this discussion, John and I dive into his family history, their connections to esoteric societies as well as the US intelligence community, and of course John's book Little Anton and the inspiration behind its creation. I hope you enjoyed this conversation between myself and John Warner IV. There is a myriad of topics I want to get into, but let's kick this off with you giving everyone listening just a bit of an introduction about your own life and some of your family history, because you come from a very unique background. And although me and my colleagues, John Luke and, and John Majorowski have done a three-part series on your book, Little Anton, I think it would be a good idea to hear from yourself just about your own personal life journey and the family background that you come from, if that's all right with you. Um, sure. Don't want to bore everyone, but um, yeah, you know, I've, I, when I was a kid, I just took it for granted. Um, and uh, in my later life, it's like, wow, I've had a really strange life. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, when I was a kid, I was just, you know, really didn't, uh, I mean, I was born into a wealthy family, but my dad was, and my uncle were, you know, and my grandmother, Granny Warner, uh, you know, they were middle-class people. They, they didn't come from great wealth. My mother's family did. Um, so, you know, I was sort of raised in a, in a dichotomy of, uh, you know, my mother was kind of a hippie type. It was the 1960s and everything. And, uh, you know, I remember her watching the original Star Trek when I was four years old, when it premiered with her. And my dad came in. And he's like, what, what's this garbage on? Oh, my God, he called it the idiot box. What are you watching this on the idiot box for? You know, he was hilarious. And uh, mom would tell him to shut the hell up. And uh, so I had an interesting upbringing. I had two older sisters and all their friends. And so that's why I write about B in my book. It's kind of loosely based on my sisters and all their really funny friends. Right. That I grew up with. Um, but, I, you know, I was just terrible student you know they my dad and they, they sent me to the national cathedral schools up here in dc and uh, i could see the cathedral from here um 
and they thought, oh, that's a great idea. And all my friends from grade school up there, they went and I was like, oh, great. I could play, you know, in those days in 1972, at 10 years old or nine years old, you could play tackle football, uh, which I thought was great. Um, I was the worst football player in St. Almond's history, um, but I thought it was great. And um, so it was different times, um, but it was a very religious school. We had to go to chapel every morning. And I was like, what? You know, this is the most boring shit I can ever imagine. And so at 10 years old, I looked at my Jewish friends, you know, and, you know, everyone was doing skullduggery in chapel, you know, trading football cards or, you know, this, that, and the other. I think I was selling candy bars, you know, there was a black market. <laughs> yeah, was, that was the same in my school as well. I think everyone's got one of those people that's uh, selling candy and sweets and stuff in school. I mean, you should, it, my, my best friend tells me, you know, he sat right next to me for years. His father was the Bishop of Washington. He's my, you know, he was the first black Bishop of Washington. And uh, he was a goody two shoes. And I was always the bad, the bad boy. And my desk was full of, you know, hot rod magazine, playboy, candy wrappers, you know, Star Trek memorabilia, you know, things like that. Everything but my books and homework. Right, right. Um, but, you know, they came down on me. I, I stopped believing in God and praying then. I was just like, this is really boring and I don't get it. And they threatened, you know, this was a church school, Episcopalian school, and they, they threatened me. Like, little, how dare you think for yourself? And I was like, wow, at least I can Not pray. a fun environment, especially for a free no, and, you know, I, I got it all. You know, God hates you, John Warner. And, you know, wow. Jesus is going to kick your ass, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, gosh, they don't sound like people I want to hang out with. <laughs> he just sounds like a used car salesman. Oh, that didn't go over well. <laughs> I said that in class. And, um, you know, I spent a good portion of my time in the principal's office. Um, it was the 70s. Everyone was pretty rebellious. But, you know, my sisters and I were. And my father's you know, working as secretary of the Navy. So I'm literally, when my parents divorced, I was little kid in the Pentagon doing my homework after school. And so I remember the Vietnam War very well. Uh, all the admirals and people, I mean, I remember that. I wander the halls of the Pentagon. And my best friend, who's a federal judge now here in DC, uh, we got arrested one time in the Pentagon. I think we were like 11, 12, you know, and uh, we ended up in the war room. They assigned a, an ensign to us, you know, better escort these two idiots. And so um, we ended up in the war room with all the computers and the big board and everything. And an admiral comes in and says, what the, what the hell are these kids doing in here? You know, and had the MPs arrest us and, you know, and um, we had done some other things on savory. And so we got arrested. You know, those were the kind of fun, interesting things that I grew up with, with dad. And the great thing about dad was because they were, my parents were divorced and I didn't see my mom that much in the seventies, he took me everywhere with him, which was, you know, my dad, you know, that was the smartest thing he ever did. And he knew I was interested in the military and, and the Navy. And uh, I mean, every Naval base, almost all of them in the world, I haven't been to Diego Garcia or some of the other more esoteric ones, but the big ones, I, I went to all of them. I mean, I, I literally grew up carrying his briefcase everywhere. And so, you know, it was just a part of my life. I thought, you know, this is normal and everything. And it was, I really enjoyed it. Um, but later on in my life, you know, meeting all those people, they remembered me as a boy. And they, of course, they were good friends with dad. And, you know, my dad's a great guy and he's really funny. And everyone likes him. He has a great record. 
but you know, I had this strange upbringing. And of course, when he married Elizabeth Taylor, you know, everything went haywire. But she was a very interesting down to earth person. Um, she believed in extraterrestrials and UFOs and all that stuff. And so she and I would talk about that at the table when I was like 16, you know. Right. And, um, you know, she was a very interesting person. Uh, so my life has been full of interesting people. I've met all kinds of people everywhere. And, uh, you know, I didn't think it was any real big deal. But, you know, later on in life, people were amazed that I just had this interesting upbringing. Well, it's, it's definitely a unique thing to be a kid walking through the halls of the Pentagon, getting in trouble for being in the war room and, and things like that. You know, it's, not yeah, everyone can claim that kind of uh, background. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Navy and Marines, I mean, you know, they fed and clothed me, right. to, so to speak. You know, I went everywhere and, and I really appreciated it. I, I still love the Navy and Marines, um, not the black programs, you know, that are run by, you know, fascist minded people. I don't like those people, but those people change uniforms all the time. So are they Navy? Are they Army? Are they Air Force or Space Force? Yeah. But, you know, growing up with all that, meeting all those senators, I mean, I knew them all. John Glenn and, you know, you name a senator. I, mean, I really was interested in all that. Um, I didn't like politics. Um, you know, right around my late 20s, early 30s, I said, you know, Dad, what kind of bullshit's going on on Capitol Hill? They can't seem to get anything done. And I, I was really trying to figure things out. And, uh, you know, we were talking about CNN. This is a funny one of my dad's so funny. He doesn't try to be, but he is. And I said, my God, they're telling us lies on CNN. And, you know, the, the admiral the other day, we were talking about this and it's bullshit. We shouldn't be in Afghanistan or whatever. And he said, oh, for God's sake, son, that's their job. You know, because <laughs> like, like, you know, he was pissed as hell because they said something bad about him. And they were like, Oh, those lecherous pirates, you know, and so it was really funny. But that's when I started to figure out that the press really was full of shit. Yeah, I mean, all of it, all of it. And I thought, well, maybe some this will be better than the next. And over time, no. And it, you know, it was my dad who really kind of are going back and forth uh, that I really realized that uh, things were not as they seem. Our, you know, our entire reality is not what we think it is. Well, well, this kind of gets into sticking kind of with your family history, but into the more esoteric part of this. Now, I've got to admit that when it comes to esoteric knowledge, secret societies, the work of people like Carl Jung, my colleagues, John Luke and John Majorowski are far more knowledgeable than myself. I'm in the process of kind of dipping my toes into this area of study at the moment, but I would love to... I'd love to unpack some of this family history, especially with your grandfather, Paul Mellon, his wife, Mary, and their connections to world-famous psychiatrist and psychoanalyst Carl Jung. Can you just give us a bit of background on your family's involvement with Carl Jung? Because this is a fascinating bit of history. Yeah, I, I'm not a, an expert on Jung, but I've read several of his books, and uh, I never was interested in that so much growing up. I was more of a military historian right. uh, guy. But my grandfather and I would talk um, you know, he'd get away from his wife and, you know, and a couple of martinis in him. And he was surprisingly, you know, he got along me, you know, not necessarily uh, was comfortable with women. I think that's my impression. Um, but I talked about his stint in World War II. And I always knew that uh, Mary Mellon, you know, she was a mystic, but I never really understood that in the old days. It wasn't until like 20 years ago, I started dipping my toes into the occult mysticism and secret societies and, uh, hidden knowledge. And then I was like, holy cow, you know, Mary was on it. Um, 
she was a badass. Uh, I give my grandmother complete credit. Um, you know, my grandfather was this very conservative, very quiet, soft-spoken guy. And by all accounts, I mean, Mary died in 1947. Uh, she wasn't. She was very vivacious and outgoing, kind of like my mom. And um, they, uh, Mary had been into mysticism, and she got to know Carl Jung. Uh, I think George Gurdjieff, she followed him. I can't remember if she met him or he was dead by her time. Um, but she certainly was into all of that. And uh, my grandfather, she kind of pulled my grandfather into that. And the, the, the story I got from him was that they went to see Carl Jung because she had terrible asthma. And it was triggered by stress and other things. But that wasn't the only thing they talked about. They talked about everything. And he said, no, your grandmother was into, you know, Annie Besant and, and uh, Madame Blavatsky and Rudolf Steiner and all, of, you know, the big wigs of the theosophists. Yeah. And they were all into Atlantis and, you know, Lord Bulwer-Lytton's novel, The Coming Race and The Brill. I've, I've ordered that and it's, it's now arrived. So I'm, I'm going to read it. It's a surprisingly thin book. I thought it would be a, bit, a, lot, lot, a lot bigger, but it's just yeah. a little tiny novel well the theosophist society of london declared it a book of absolute truth i think sometime in the early 20th century and so she was into all that you know the atlantis lore and everything you know um so i've really the last 20 years i've had to play really fast catch up to her and i don't have a lot of her diaries or things that she wrote to read um, my mother has a few letters that i've read and everything but she's a very she was really smart and um so she kind of probably opened up my grandfather to a lot of those esoteric concepts, um, which is probably why in World War II, uh, he got to know Carl Jung. And when he was a, a, a U.S. Army Cavalry officer in Fort Riley, Kansas, um, I think it was Mary's sort of, you know, leanings that, that uh, inspired him to go into the OSS. They were looking for very wealthy, well-traveled, you know, Yale-educated, Harvard, Princeton types, because they were going to be dealing with the Nazi uh, intelligence, you know, the Abwehr and the Ostfront and the Galen, you know, intelligence services. They needed the best minds they could. And in those days, they thought, well, the most educated, well-rounded people who have traveled the world, you know, they can probably do it better. That's why the OSS got Julia Child. And, you know, Mo Berg is my favorite, the Red Sox catcher. There's a movie about him. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think Young was a big part of Mary Mellon's life. And reading, you know, Young wrote a book called Flying Saucers, which I think is kind of disinformation because, uh, you know, that gets into Carl Young being a, uh, the story I hear is that he was a, you know, a consultant to MJ-12 group, you know, after the World War II. How did you find that out, if I can, if I can ask that um, I've read about it from several sources. Um, it makes sense to me because they brought in, you know, Alan Dulles was station chief of Switzerland. Right. And so Alan Dulles and my grandfather were good friends. Yeah. Be careful who you, who you befriend in the war, you know, but the Dulles brothers, their law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, you know, my great grandfather, Andrew Mellon, they, the Mellons had been using them, you know, wall street, skullduggery, robber baron stuff. That was the law firm to go to. They were like, oh, invest in Nazi Germany over here. Oh, Adolf Hitler seems like our kind of guy. He's a Republican, isn't he? You know, and that's what they thought, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, 
Andrew Mellon was Secretary of the Treasury. He was also the ambassador to England in 1931. Uh, he and his oligarch buddies, you know, they were involved with their outdated policies. And I think it's very sus suspicious and suspect stuff going on before and after the Great Depression hit. And I think a lot of people blame him and, and Rockefeller and Carnegie and all the others uh, for that. And of course, as you know, you know, when you crash markets and then you bring them back up again, you, you know, you make money on both sides. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, the Mellon fortune on all four brothers, Mellon brothers, you know, it's all wrapped up in that kind of, you know, seedy business. Now, you've said a number of times, I'm going to jump into the deep end a little bit here, that your family is one of the 13 families of the real Illuminati and the... No, no, no. no? no? Committee yeah, of 300? Yes. Right. So here, here's what I've, cause I never, growing up, I've never heard of the Illuminati. I've never even heard of the committee of 300 or, you know, I never even heard that even in polite society. So what it is, is the 13 Royal families of Europe. Uh, right. They're, right. they're loosely connected to the black Venetian royalty um, and other bloodlines. But um, the conspiracy is that those families rule uh, even in secret um, you know, they said, oh, kings and queens, they don't have any money anymore. You know, the royals don't rule. No, that's not my impression. I've met a lot of these people over the years with my dad. And I've been to Buckingham Palace. I've met the queen three times. You know, what is so interesting about us melons? It's because my grandfather and the queen were very good friends. Uh, they had the horse racing hobby in common, but it was a lot more than that. Um, and when I first read about all the 13 families sort of controlling the 300 committee of 300 families of America. I thought that was a crock shit. I never heard any of that. Um, it's certainly not, you know, you're not given a handbook in these big families. You know, here, here it is, you know, you know, here's the scoop, you know, you know, they don't do that. I mean, I've never heard of any of this stuff. I learned it like everyone else did on my own. Right. And well, that's, that's something I wanted to real, bring up real quick. So I think it's important for people to understand whether or not this is information you've come across via public research or information through, you know, kind of special networks within your family. So the Committee of 300, 13 families, that's something that you found through public research. Absolutely. Right. Um, I didn't, you know, other than my grandfather's stories and uh, some other melons that I've talked to about certain issues, um, but all the esoteric stuff and, and None of that came from uh, the Mellon family. Um, but of course, they're in it now, you know, Chris Mellon. So, you know, I had to learn it on my own. Um, here's what I've learned over the years, and I, it took me a while to piece it together. But when I was at the University of Virginia, uh, another friend of mine uh, is, you know, he's from one of these Committee of 300 families, you know. Illuminati is a catch-all term, you know, people bandy it about it. It really only refers to the Bavarian Illuminati. Of right, yeah. Um, it's a loose term that, you know, throw all the rich, bad people in a pile and, you know, they're the Illuminati. Um, like I said, I've never even heard of it uh, outside of the historical context until people started misusing it, I think. Because um, I'm a historian. And so when I read all about the Adam Weishaupt and uh, the Bavarian Illuminati, it's just Somebody came up with that as just an easy way to describe the complex factions of our world, you know, the elite factions. But these elite factions are more elite than you think. Um, when I was at the University of Virginia, my friend and I, we were, you know, 
wild boys. We weren't into all that, you know, coat and tie stuff. But there was a, a fraternity that was, you know, very conservative, coats and ties, you know, Republicans. And um, I went there and, you know, these guys were very strange. And I didn't want to wear a coat and tie. I hate wearing a coat and tie. You know, I'm a jean and T-shirt guy, even today. And so my friends stayed and party with them for a while and everything. And I never thought anything about it. And then at the, I've heard of these secret societies at UVA. Uh, one's called the Seven Society and one's called Imp. And I think there's another couple of, of those. And no one knows the members. The only way you know who a member was, it's on their gravestones. And so you look them up on the internet and they say, oh, we're this beneficial society for, you know, the cultural arts or something highbrow, high hat, you know, some of that bullshit. And so I, I started drilling down on secret societies. Okay, I think, you know, I figured it out. And where they, they tap these usually just young boys, you know, college men, whatever you want to call them, some women, but I think it's mostly men because it's patriarchal. And so... You know, and Yale is skull and bones. And my grandfather, Paul Mellon, was a scroll and key, which is linked to the Tula Society of Germany. Right. Do the math on that one. But um, I think they, they, you join a conservative minded fraternity, and then you have another party, and they're like, oh, let me introduce you to some faculty and other people, whoever they are, the, you know, the alumni, big alumni. And then, Probably some of these kids are like, yeah, you know, Adolf Hitler's not that bad of a guy. And, you know, I'm into, you know, big military and, you know, screw everybody. And they're like, oh, that's, that's interesting. And then, you know, you go to another party and they tap you on the shoulder. You know, like, would you like to be part of an exclusive club? But, you know, they're like, you know, fuck yeah. You know, but that takes a certain mindset. And, you know, when you're in these you know, secret, secret society is not a fraternity, but a secret society. Um, you're in it for the long haul, whether you like it or not. I, I believe they're blackmailed. You know, if some kid, you know, has gone through some strange rituals and all these things and says, well, I don't want to be in skull and bones or the seven society or whatever it is. Um, they're like, um, no, you can't leave. And, like, you know. and so blackmail to blackmail someone, as you know, it's pretty easy, you know, put a Mickey in their drink, and they pass out and you put them in compromising positions and you take photographs. And that's been done for the last 160 years, as long as we've had photographs. I guess in the old days they did it with witnesses, but you know, this is part of our world and it goes on up into these bigger organizations, you know, like the Bohemian Grove, which I believe is a big giant blackmail club. And I know people that have gone there and it, it actually breaks my heart because I, I think they're into all kinds of satanic magic. I mean, the giant owl, the Bohemian Club in California, that's indicative of Hecate, you know, Catherine of the Wheel, Inanna. These are, you know, Anunnaki gods and uh, they're not nice people. I mean, that's, you know, they're doing Moloch rituals and Babylon workings and, you know, Enochian magic. And that took me years to figure out, years and years, because that's complicated disturbing, weird history. But, you know, everyone sees that giant owl, you know, knows what they're up to. And uh, I think, you know, part of the blackmail at the Bohemian Grove Club, you know, I think that has to do with pedophilia. Well, it's, it's you know, it's one of those things where the, the kind of tangible public 
surface level evidence for things like this in terms of blackmail rings that involve that type of compromising material is Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, you know, he yeah. he he was he has been shown and I think it was Eric Weinstein who I love listening to um who said that when it comes to the Jeffrey Epstein issue we've tripped over an enormous structure that we don't fully understand here that he's just this little part of a much bigger structure. And uh, I think that's the first time that within the mainstream People have been given a glimpse into a very unsavory world that does actually happen to include high-level intelligence, because it was, you know, he's been linked. He's been linked to intelligence communities. He was shaking hands and working through high society. Pretty much everyone who's worth knowing, he knew and interacted with. And so, you know, he's, it seems like people like that are the first kind of uh, signals out to the mainstream that hey, there is actually something going on here when it comes to blackmailing, and especially when it comes to unfortunately child trafficking and and that really unsavory world. Yeah. I mean, I've had discussions with my father over the decades and I'm like, you know, sometime in the early 2000s after 9-11, you know, when I really started probing the photographs of the Pentagon, you know, I'm a pilot. And so there was no wing debris and no indentations in, in the structure, no jet engines, you know, and I really started to be suspicious of my father. And I said, listen, man, something bad's going on here. This doesn't make sense. There's cameras all over DC and there's no footage of this thing other than a vague explosion which, you know, I've worked in the film and TV industry and that's easy to replicate using 3D animation. And you better believe they can use that even back in the day. So I started asking uncomfortable questions. And so, um, you know, he and I, he did agree with me that politicians are, you know, bought and paid for. And that's why he aligned himself with the Navy and the Marines because being secretary of the Navy, he had made all those connections and friendships. And he knew he didn't want to be associated with special interests. You know, people can debate that. My father's a politician with a public record, you know. But from my knowledge, you know, that's why he, because that's a solid foundation to back, to, you know, they've got your back. Right, yeah. And so, and, you know, but let me preface that by the military industrial complex, the intelligence community, the corporate, you know, black project world, you know, everything. It's highly compartmentalized and highly factionalized. I'll bet there's hundreds of factions now, if not thousands. So when people say, oh, the Pentagon's lying about this, that, and the other, it's like, well, which factions are lying? Right, yeah, yeah. You know, this dovetails into Chris Mellon. You know, he, obviously he represents a certain number of factions. And I'm sure there's a lot more factions that hate his guts. You know, and like to see him and Lionel Zondo, you know, their heads on pikes, you know. So... It's very complicated, but, you know, my dad and I did, you know, at least he agrees. Like, yeah, everyone's bought and paid for by something. Um, circling back to your uh, dad and also your grandfather, one thing that I find to be quite interesting, especially because I'm a British citizen, is the fact that your dad, former senator and secretary of the Navy, John Warner III, and your grandfather, Paul Mellon, are both knights of the British Empire, which is one of the highest honours that one can receive from the British royal family. And I, I find that really interesting. Can you talk about your family's connection to the Windsors, especially when it comes to your grandfather, Paul Mellon and Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah. Um, it goes back to Andrew Mellon being ambassador to the court of St. James in 1931. He was good friends with the Royal family by all accounts. Uh, Andrew Mellon died in 1937. So my, even my, uh, you know, my mother was one year old, so they, no one remembers him, but from my talks with my grandfather, I get a pretty, you know, he was a pretty, sober, you know, grim chap. Um, but, you know, the Mellons are Protestant Irish, so 
that strikes me as strange because, you know, the British monarchy and all the British aristocracy, you know, I've met a lot of these people over the years. Um, they don't like Irish people. I don't care what they say. And they certainly don't like colonial Americans. They call us colonials. Uh, I've been to those houses and, and those gatherings. I mean, they're, they're very high on their horse. I'm not saying they're all, you know, you know, they're all assholes. You know, I'm sure there's some good ones too, but the ones I've seen, they're, they're very high on the horse. They think the whole world is beneath them. They really do. And so I find that fascinating that, 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 that you know, an Irishman such as, you know, Andrew Mellon. And so my grandfather, Paul Mellon, was introduced to the royal family when he went to Europe on trips with his father. Um, and I sent you that photo of Andrew Mellon with uh, Amelia Earhart. Um, she knew my, uh, Mary Mellon and, and my grandfather too. Um, you know, it was a small chummy world of, you know, of rich folks. And so, you know, at some point during World War II, you know, uh, Paul's brother-in-law, David K.E. Bruce was station chief in London. And so, you know, they would go to the Savoy Hotel, you know, and uh, mingle with the royals. And, you know, Queen Elizabeth was a mechanic in those days. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and so they, you know, it was a small chummy world. Um, are there bloodlines in common? I can't find any melons with any kind of royal connection. Actually, on my father's side, were Stuart from Peterhead, Scotland. Um, so that's interesting. Um, so it's... It's a little hazy as to when, you know, but certainly after World War II, uh, Paul and Queen Elizabeth were definitely chummy. Um, she would come to visit him at his farm in, in Virginia. Um, he's got a huge, he had a huge farm and with a, its own jet strip. And, you know, before that he had a, a C-47 Goonie Bird. Um, and um, by all accounts, you know, other members of the royal family stayed with Paul and, you know, he was a dutiful uh, minion of the royal family um you know when i went to buckingham palace with my dad i always got a creepy feeling you know and i'm not saying they're all you know negative people i'm sure they're not but it didn't sit well with me and i i don't do well with authority i don't bow down yeah. to anyone I, I recommend to your viewers and fans everyone should should feel empowered and stand in their power and not be beholden to some group or you know, a messiah of some sort, or, you know, I don't bound down to any, you know, higher power. Uh, you know, all the truth of the universe is within us. It's just in your aura, in your soul. I mean, you know, everyone's like looking for evidence and the truth or well, there's no evidence of anything really in our reality. You can't even prove we exist beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know, so I'm getting ahead of myself, but, um, you know, as far as the royal family, <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I sent you that article in the 90s, you know, yeah. Paul Mellon was, you know, the Virginia Hunt Country ambassador to the Windsors. I mean, it was no secret or anything. Um, but what people don't know is that directors of central intelligence and presidents would meet with Paul at his farm in secret. You know, ever since World War II. I know Ike was there. My mother remembers seeing Ike. Wow. And, um, you know, that's not public. And I've been told by my intelligence community friends, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, the Mellons come up to the CIA all the time. Um, and, you know, Richard Mellon Scaife, I think, Mellon Scaife, you know, he supposedly had a black slush fund for the CIA in the 50s. I'm sure my grandfather did, too, because Alan 
Dulles tapped him on the shoulder. Hey, man, you know, we got to go to the CFR meeting. And they were in the Jason Society, the Trilateral Commission. And the bottom line about Paul Mellon is if you're a member of those societies and you're bet, you know, one of your good buds is Alan Dulles, you know, who's involved in the Kennedy assassination, you don't care about the people of the world. You only care about your kind. And that's the impression I've gotten from meeting all these people all my life is, you know, these people that look down on others, you know, I don't, I don't like them. I don't, I don't feel any kinship with them. I've never, never have. No. Speaking of the CIA, uh, was it your great grandfather, Andrew Mellon, that was integral in the establishment of the office of strategic services or which, you know, the OSS? No. Um, while Bill Donovan, uh, was a friend of my grandfather's. Uh, right. They would fight together with General Patton and General Marshall in Middleburg, Virginia, which is a big horse fox hunting capital. And so I have a picture of Patton and General Marshall, you know, together that my grandfather took one day. And um, no, as far as I know, Donovan cobbled up the OSS, um, but it's still shrouded in mystery. Um, but they, they only tapped Paul Mellon to join. He wasn't one of the founding members or anything, to my knowledge. Was he? Maybe. Uh, they certainly, you know, were probably very interested in Mary Mellon and her mystical, you know, that's how Carl, Carl Jung got involved with the OSS, was through Mary Mellon and my grandfather. They were like, hey, we've got this great organization with Wild Bill Donovan. You know, he was the real kind of Indiana Jones kind of guy. Not the rest of them, really. Mo Berg, too. But, you know, my grandfather was a very meek kind of guy. You know, he wasn't the wild man that I am or somebody like that. He he was a very reserved uh, man. And it was your grandfather that you and um, you and your father, John Warner, have made numerous Freedom of Information Act requests to the CIA, right, in order to gain access to his, uh, his files. Am I right in saying that these files were in the ballpark of like 10,000 pages or something like that? Yes, that's what I've been told. I mean, my wife used to work for the CIA. And she's like, oh, well, the Mellon name comes around all the time. You know, my, my uncle Tim Mellon, my mother's brother, he owns Pan Am Systems, which oh, is wow. the old Pan Am Airlines. And he hauls freight in New England on his railroad. And I know for a fact that the, he hauls classified cargo for the intel community. So there's been, there's been 40 melons since World War II, I've been told. I don't have all their names that have been in the intelligence business. Now, Stephen Greer, you know, told me, and I believe him, you know, the melons are the first family of intelligence. That's what he calls them. He's correct. Um, I met with him years ago here in DC and my wife and I, and, uh, because in 2010, one of his podcasts, he's like, Oh, Senator John Warner was a magic member. I was like, Holy shit. Yeah, I remember you saying that in an interview. Yeah. Yeah. Majority for joint intelligence committee, which doesn't officially exist. You know, it's a liaison to the, whatever majestic 12 calls themselves PI 40 or some other name, you know, and, um, you know, he sat on the select Intel community committee as well as being chairman of the armed services. So he won't, he won't talk to me about any of that stuff, but you know, I know he was on it. Um, and I suspect he was a magic member. I, I do, but, um, I've gotten away from your question. I'm sorry. No, don't worry about it. I was going to ask as well. Did your grandfather, <laughs> did your grandfather Paul ever tell you anything that would connect him to the UFO issue? Uh, yes, he did. Um, although at the time I thought nothing of it. Um, 
when I was in college, I was taking Russian history and military history um, as a major. And so I was going to go in that field of graduate school, but I didn't. Um, and he was interested. I was interested in talking with him about World War II. And we would have some, not, they weren't many, but we had a few man-to-man conversations. You know, after two or three of his martinis, man, you know, he would loosen up a bit. And he gave me one day as a present, this letter from General Patton that said, you know, hey, Paul, it was great to you know, work with you during the war. You know, we had a lot of fun in, in Czechoslovakia together. And, you know, let's Fox Hunt and do all that fun stuff. And so this was probably around 1985. I was probably 24 years old, 23. And um, I said, well, what were you doing? What was the OSS and you doing in Czechoslovakia? And he said, well, I was attached with Patton's third army in 1945. Well, where was Patton? Well, Ike told Patton, you know, Patton wanted to go to Berlin. But I told him, no, you need to do something more important. You need to go and secure Pilsen in Czechoslovakia. And he said, well, I'll do better than that. You know, I'm going to go on to Prague. And they said, no. And the, and the story is, and I, I got it from Joseph P. Farrell, and I believe it, because it jives with my grandfather's story, is that the Yalta conference, they promised Prague and that half of Czechoslovakia to the Soviets, to Stalin, as a deal. And that's the way, you know, these things work. And so I said, well, what were you doing? And he didn't, you know, my grandfather wouldn't name the town, but I'm pretty sure it's Pilsen. And what was in Pilsen? Well, we know now through Nick Cook's book. And and then when I read that book, I was like, oh, shit, you know, this is getting really weird for me. Uh, And I probably read that for the first time 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And uh, that's where General SS Hans Kammler was in charge of the SSE4 technology division the Wunderwaffe and, you know, rockets, laser, chemical lasers at IG Farben, uh, transistors. Oh yeah. Uh, they had them during the war and, um, you know, atomic program, they would, you know, they would distill isotopes using a chemical laser. That's what it's for. Um, I don't believe the stories that the laser was invented elsewhere. No, the Germans did it. It all makes sense to me with everything I know. Um, and, you know, Walter Gerlach and, and uh, nonlinear German physics and all that stuff. And, you know, the rumors of the Nazi bell and anti-gravity experiments and whatever they were doing with it. Um, and so I didn't know that then, but my grandfather said, oh, I, I went to a, a German hangar or warehouse with, and I was with Patton. And uh, I think he said General Marshall, but I can't place Marshall there at the time. But I think I knew he was with Bruce and probably Alan Doss, but he didn't say that. And he said, you know, we saw all kinds of exotic, you know, German weapons in, you know, in production, rockets and everything. He said, I saw a disc-shaped aircraft. And I said, ooh, is that the one powered by all the, the BMW jet engines, you know, the Arado ones and BMW made them in a circle that didn't really work? And <laughs> I'll never forget it. And he laughed and he said, no. Ooh. And at the time, I thought nothing of it. I thought, that's cool. Yeah. And it wasn't years later when I read Nick Cook's book that, you know, that shiver went down my spine. Kind of connected those dots and was, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it didn't give me a warm, fuzzy feeling because, you know, Hans Kalmer was in charge of building all the death camps and he was in charge. He came up with the idea of using slave labor 
That's why he's, you know, basically not in the history books. Yeah, we're taught about, you know, Mengele and, you know, all the other bad guys and stuff. Not Hans Kahnler. He was the man. And he's, he's, I put him in my second book. I'm writing about it now. But in my third book, I'll touch on Hans Kahnler a lot more. But I didn't start piecing all this together until 15 years ago. And I started asking him around quietly about the melons. And people were like, you know, I've made a lot of friends, you know, contacts in D.C., both in the intel community, the military community. And they were like, oh, yeah, the melons, you know, your family's been involved in this, that and the other. And I'm like, why didn't I know about this or hear about this? And like, well, you didn't hear it from me, <laughs> you know, and but I was surprised how many senators and congressmen that I've known over the decades and military people were so forthcoming. And I think people, they knew people wouldn't believe me or you know, I was my father's son. They, they, they loved my dad. And I just said, you know, don't quote me or you're not a, you're not a writer, are you? And I was like, no, I'm just you know, a racing driver. <laughs> Don't worry about this idiot. You know, they didn't worry about it. But I, I knew Bobby Ray Inman. I mean, I remember him from my days as a youth in the Pentagon when my dad was Secretary of the Navy. Um, and uh, you know, later on, I found out, and I believe it, that he was MJ One in the '90s of the Majestic Twelve group. And that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I remember asking him, you know, "Do we have UFOs in the military?" He's like, "Oh, sure." You know, but not much beyond that. Well, he's a very prominent figure. I mean, Admiral Bobby Ray Inman is, especially within the UFO community, I mean, he was a close confidant of George Bush and a, a man who was well acquainted with sites such as the Green Lake Complex or, you know, what people know as Area 51. Um, I think he was he was director of both Naval Intelligence and the NSA, as well as deputy oh, yeah. director of the DIA, CIA. Um, yeah. <clears throat> one thing that I love about that is he was once asked by a reporter, I think his name was Bob Exler, if he believed any of the recovered UFO vehicles in possession of the US military would ever become available. There's a video of this as well with him on record talking. And, um, you know, this guy's asking if, the, if these things will ever become available for public technological research. In a telephone conversation with Bob Exler in 1989, he referred to recovered vehicles becoming available for research. Uh, anticipate that any of the recovered vehicles would ever be uh, become available for uh, technological research outside of the uh, military circles? Again, I honestly don't know. Uh, uh, ten years ago, the answer would have been no. Yeah. Uh, whether as time has evolved, they're beginning to become more open on it, is a possibility. You, see, you know, that, that statement alone would indicate that Admiral Bobby Raymond was aware of the existence of retrieved vehicles of non-terrestrial origin. And he was also, when he I think when he retired from government service in 1982, he went on to become the president of Science Applications International Corporation, SAIC, which, you know, one of the massive companies that was one of its main areas was gravitational propulsion research and all this. So he's, he's like a prime candidate for, for MJ1, as you said. Oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, it's that world, you know, back in the 90s, that was no big deal to knock on doors. I think Stephen Greer and Richard Dolan and others were, were really trying to get some scoop and they, they got a lot of good information. Um, and I, I sort of dabbled, kept dabbling in the UFO field a little bit. But what was interesting is in 1993, um, I'm backtracking here. Yeah, no worries. I was racing in California at Sears Point, and 
one of my teammates said, oh, I know you're. <laughs> I was going to ask you about dad. this. Yeah, this is a good story. Yeah, I meet people all the time. They're like, oh, I know your dad. You know, it's a great guy. And I said, oh, really? And uh, he said, oh, yeah, my dad used to work in the aerospace field. And I said, oh, for who? And he's like, you know, Lockheed Martin, you know, you name it. It's Boeing defense, everything. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, they're the ones working on all the UFO stuff, you know. But my knowledge was scanned back then. This is 93. And he said, well, I'm going to send you some documents over the Internet and show them to your dad. And I said, well, I got to go home and get the Internet. I didn't even have it. So I went home and I got AOL dial up in Northern Virginia and everything. And he sent me the MJ-12 files. And I did some research and I, I read about Stanton Friedman and he thought they were probably real, most of them and everything. And I thought, this is holy shit. What is this? So I printed them out and I showed them to my dad one night. And he said, wow, this is interesting. Let me borrow these for a while. So I said, sure, you know, go ahead, knock yourself out. And a couple months later, um, I said, hey, what about those documents? He said, oh, well, the Pentagon and the FBI tell me they're all a hoax. Then, you know, back to whatever we were, you know, watching on TV. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, what's going on? What do you think is going on? And, you know, I think I probably asked him about Bobby Ray Inman and all this Roswell stuff. And, and uh, he said, you know, you know, it's a hoax, it's a hoax. And I said, well, what do you think personally? He's father to son. Because he's, you know, we were, we're very close. And I kept pressing him on it. And I, because I, I know my dad better than anyone. And I said, dad, don't give me this political runaround like you give. I'm not one of your constituents. You know, I'm your son. And I kept harassing him about it. And finally he said, son, just leave it alone. Don't go down that road. And I said, fuck me. Are you serious? This is true. This is real, real. He's like, I can't, you know, I don't know anything about these documents, but I, you know, this is national security stuff. Um, you know, I know a little bit about it, but it's, you know, I'm not much, but you know, you need to just leave it alone. He'd always tell me to live my life and enjoy myself. I said, dad, how the hell can I live my life and enjoy myself when this is the truth of our world? You know, and I had a very small knowledge, a body of knowledge at that point, 93. I was 31. Um, but I was a very young, naive 31. I really was. If anything, everybody was stupid and naive, it was me. I admit that. All I cared about was how cold the beer was, how fast my race car could go, you know, how many pretty women I could date, you know, things like that. And hanging out with my friends and, you know, doing a, not much of anything else. But this got my attention. And so I um, didn't talk about it. And I may have talked about it to my best friend or two. And they just wouldn't have anything. They were like, oh, really? You're just shooting us. You know, you're a creative guy. You've got this great imagination. You know, ha, ha, ha. And I started to realize that no one wanted to talk about this. It's not as if people aren't interested. It's they don't want to past a certain point. If you start messing with people's hard floor of reality. You will get pushed back. I don't care if it's your family members. They'll take a baseball bat to your head every day. You know, I don't want to know. And so, you know, this gets to a point that I, I wanted to make is that I feel as culpable about the situation as my father because I knew about this stuff in 1993 and I didn't do anything about it, really. 
I did a little more research after that. You know, I've heard of Richard Dolan, Stephen Greer, and maybe Alex Collier doing some, you know, really wild stuff. Uh, and I started to become more interested in it. You know, I don't have proof of anything. You know, I'm, I'm not here to convince anybody of anything. You know, people should think for themselves. But, you know, I, I want to make that clear. You know, I don't have super secret documents. I've seen a lot of documents. But, you know, people are like, where are the documents of something? And it's like, those are black words on white paper right. that anyone could fake. So documents, you know, Stephen Greer says, I got 10,000 documents. It's like, well, why don't you release them? You know, what's, you know, not that they're going to convince any, it's like the Admiral Wilson documents. Everyone made a big stink of that in the disclosure movement, but it's just another story. The Naval officers wouldn't confirm it. You know, I, I think they're true, but so what? There's no way to authenticate anything. You know, Greer's always into authenticating documents. And I said, Stephen, who's doc, who's leaning over the shoulder of the doc, you know, people authenticating. I want to circle back on something real quick, because you mentioned in your emails to Jean-Luc that Paul Mellon helped fund the CIA, NASA, uh, and NSA, and that he, alongside Nelson Rockefeller um, and Alan Dulles, were members of the CFR and Jason societies. Now, this is where my knowledge falls short. So I was just wondering if you could tell us what the CFR and Jason societies are. Well, people can look it up for themselves. Um, but basically, if you're a member of the CFR, the Council of Foreign Relations, um, another one is the Bilderberger Group that everyone loves to trash, and rightly so. Prince Bernard was in the SS, you know, founding member. Um, the Jason Society, the Trilateral Commission, um, these are globalist, you know, financial uh, roundtables. And, you know, they sit around the tables and go, gee whiz, that, what, what should we do this African country that needs our help? And they're like, now let it starve for 10 years, then we'll, then we'll bring in help. And these are people that don't care about, I don't care what their public press says. You know, you're not a nice person if you're on these roundtables, these secret roundtables. I mean, they don't publish you know, but I know uh, it's public. You know, my grandfather's on the CFR. I, I sent you that CIA document that yep. says, hey, this is Alan Dulles. Hey, man, I'll see you there, you know, at 6 p.m. in New York. You know, if Alan Dulles is your bud, you know, your best bud going to the CFR, you know, these guys, you know, don't care about anything but secrecy in themselves. You know, Rockefeller, the Mellons, you name it. They all gave money because in the early, late 40s, early 50s, you know, they didn't want to, Congress was strapped for cash. They didn't want to create a new intelligence service or the NSA. The NSA was secret for 30 years. So was the National Reconnaissance Office. They were all created in the early 50s. No one ever knew about them. But, you know, they tapped these, you know, committee of 300 families and whoever had big bucks and said, you know, your nation needs you, you know, wave the flag. And uh, we need support. And they're like, hell yeah, all you want. And this gets into banking fraud. And, and you know, look at Wall Street today, derivatives and uh, you know, hedge funds, you know, big foundations, they all funnel money into the, the military industrial complex, the deep state, you know, the intelligence services on the down low. And I'll refer to, you know, you and all your fans, you know, to Catherine Austin Fitz the Solari report, she's, you know, she used to be the HUD chairman under Bush. So she's drilled down on all this financial stuff. You know, I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable history. Yeah. But, you know, 
because Chris Mellon is public and all this stuff in the last four years, you know, here I am because I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to stay silent. You know, my wife and I talked about it for years, but you know, if they're going to lie to the American public by omission or otherwise, you know, the thing with Chris is the impression that the American people have, I don't know about the rest of the world, but the American people have is he speaks for the Mellon family. He does not. You know, I have four other members of the Mellon family, maybe five, who are, you know, somewhat awake to some of this stuff. And, but none of us, you know, he doesn't speak for us. So everyone thinks that these families are all in cahoots with each other. You know, 90% of these people are just really boring, nice people who only want to talk about yachts and trips and, oh, gee whiz, a little philosophy here and there. They don't, you know, you don't talk about this stuff in polite society at the table, you know, or, in, you know, in the bar, you know, it, they, it's the 5% or the Warner, I have the Warner 10% rule. You know, it's the 10% of these ultra conservative people that are involved with the financial system or, you know, the law or, you know, whatever, or into aerospace and, and other things like that. Like my uncle, Tim Mellon, Pan Am systems. He's a military contractor. He told me that, you know, there's nothing to hide. He's proud of it, but he's, you know, quadrupled his fortune over, over the decades. I think he's like 79 or eight now. I mean, the Mellon family is deep in deep yogurt with all this stuff. You know, it's a fact. You know, the reason I think that Andrew Mellon donated a National Gallery of Art on Constitution Avenue and Paul Mellon donated the East Wing of the National Gallery of Art is because these are great things to do for the American people. You know, I'm proud of them for that, but nothing else, you know. America will put a gold wreath over your head. I, I was at um, two ceremonies with Paul Mellon, uh, white tie and tails, and he got a, mel uh, a medal from Reagan, you know, at this big dinner at the National Gallery. You know, Reagan was there and, uh, you know, hey, Paul, you know, awesome, you know. And then later on for when I think he got the National Award of Freedom or one of those awards for being a good, you know, good Samaritan American, and I sat next to Vice President Bush the whole time. You know, I don't get a good feeling about him either. You know, or the, any of the Bushes. You know, I, I, I met his, you know, George Bush II and uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld when in the, in the Oval Office when they, they named the submarine after my dad, the USS John Warner. You know, these people don't give me a good feeling. And I didn't quite understand at the time the concept of the higher self and your, your, uh, gut intuition, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, the horse sense, they call it in Virginia, you know, your horse sense. These are things people, the sixth sense should really understand as everyone has it. Everyone's psychic to a degree, every single person to a degree. And uh, to trust that implicitly, because that took me a long time. I would always go to other people. I wonder, you know, what's going on with the world, but learn to trust yourself. Yeah. And, when I started doing that, you know, doing the shadow work, you know, the dark night of the soul, you know, which helps, you know, not, you know, I have a bloodthirsty side, I, I admit it, but I'm doing everything I can to balance that out with my good side. And, you know, until you do that, uh, a lot of this just sounds like gobbledygook and, and, you know, crazy conspiracy theories. 
No, I agree with you. I mean, one thing that I would take from that as absolutely solid advice is to trust your gut. And more often these days, I've uh, I've tried to be intuitively guided. And, it, you know, it's what led to me creating this platform and, and being involved in the subject that I'm involved in now. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 26 years old now, and I've only really been doing this for a, for a few years, and especially with the YouTube channel, really, in terms of seriously doing it, only about a year and year and a half. But within this time, I've, I've, I've really tried to trust my intuition and it has been the most rewarding time. Uh, you know, it has yielded the most results when I've actually gone with my gut and, you know, said, all right, I'm not going to have plan A to Z and, and think about everything in the future. I'm just going to go with the flow and see what happens and, and uh, you know, trust my instincts. And yeah, that's been definitely the most rewarding and interesting period of my life so far is you know all these things rushed in to to, to meet me uh, from that so and I, I absolutely agree with you in that regard um kind of speaking about things like that intuition and also synchronicities just want to rewind back to something about carl young because this was something that you mentioned in uh, again one of your emails to my colleague jean uh, you mentioned that carl young told the majestic 12 group in 1948 that the foo fighter issue was worse than they thought uh, you quote carl young to have said in relation to the foo fighters the rudder might be taken from our grasp uh, now you added on to this that you believe the rudder was stolen from us around the time of the fall of atlantis finishing off by saying to jean that he should look up the german hall of atlantis which was built by the nazis what do you see as the tangible in bremen. bremen germany in bremen germany so what do you see as the tangible connection between the german nazi party and the great lost city of atlantis well let me answer your first <laughs> Let me answer your first question. Please. Um, Carl Jung, the story is he briefed MJ-12. I don't know what year, but probably in 47 when, when Truman was just shitting bricks over all this Foo Fighter stuff. And of course, you know, while Bill Donovan reported to Roosevelt, and so did Jimmy Doolittle, uh, I believe the story uh, that FDR had the interplanetary unit all through the war, and Jimmy Doolittle was in charge of it. The Germans thought the food fighters were ours. The English thought they were Germans. And everybody was like, what's going on? These giant, intelligently controlled balls of plasma that seem to be some type of probe. And I write about this in a chapter in my new book, the sequel to Little Anton. And um, there's a scene with General Marshall Churchill and FDR. And it's a true, it's a true story, but um, I put all that in there. And so what I think was going on uh, was they, uh, they tapped Carl Jung and they said, look, the special committee, you know, the group, they call them, um, you know, Forstall and, and, and Donovan said, go, go brief them on what you think. And he went in there, probably Carl Jung, and said, look, you know, we're dealing with stuff that Rudolf Steiner and Gurdjieff and Blavatsky and all these philosophers and the Sufis, you know, the secret societies, the, have been talking about for millennia. And you can imagine these generals and scientists and everybody in MJ-12 going, oh, shit, are you kidding me? No. You know, and he said, you know, there's a quote, and I, I have the full quote somewhere, but basically, you know, if you tell the public, we might have the whole rudder removed from our grasp. It's something like that. Right. And that is a public quote of Carl Jung's, but I think he said it to MJ-12 first said, you better start making deals. I think the Germans have been making deals for a lot longer than you have. You know, I think they have advisors on how to use all their new technology. And they were like, because we were way behind the Germans. Don't, don't let the history books or the movies tell you that. 
we were way behind. There's very good evidence to suggest the Germans had an, a working atomic device by 44 in October. But look at all the high casualties on the Russian front. Uh, I think Putin came out with 27 million recently. Other historians I've talked to in Russia of the email, they're like, oh no, it's gotta be around 30 or more. Now, how did the Russians lose masses, millions of people with the Germans using conventional weapons? And the answer is you just can't. And so, you know, that highly suggests they had weapons of mass destruction. The barrage rockets, they might've had, I think it's almost been proven, not quite, that they had thermobaric fuel air bombs, which just like a mini tactical nuke, you fire them en masse. That will do huge casualties. And um, those big railway guns like Dora and Gustav, they never made any sense. Historians were like, oh, that's Hitler's ego run amok. However, those could lob a 2,000 pound, the biggest one could lob a 2,000 pound shell 26 miles. Wouldn't that make sense for a very crude uranium or even thorium device? You know, they blew up a hell of a big ammunition bunker at Sebastopol in 1942. Von Manstein was in charge of all that operation, General von Manstein. He's also a character in Little Anton. He's B's, you know, cousin. <laughs> which a lot of these British, you know, aristocracy, they were cousins with Prussian aristocrats, you know, Prince, uh, Prince Albert. But, um, you know, that strongly suggests that the Germans didn't just build things out of ego. Hitler had a big ego. There's no doubt about that. But they had big railway guns in World War I. They sort of did a job. But that doesn't make sense to build a dual railway track for a giant, massive gun that could lob a shell 26 miles but it does if you have exotic ordnance. So the Germans, the SS was well known for going all over Europe and the Middle East for thorium. And I get into this in my, in my book that I'm writing now. Uh, that's, that's public knowledge if you know where to look and much more than they needed for an atomic program. So thorium is, is said to be a key element in all the Nazi Bell free energy experiments, Project Kronos and Cinnabar, uh, the red mercury, you know, Again, IG Farben, the Buna rubber factory at uh, Auschwitz. They never really made any rubber. What were they up to? You know, you have to, it's a million pieces to put together. It's very difficult. I, I the guess the burning question for a lot of people would be that, you know, if they did have this in, in, incredible advancement ahead of the, uh, the Allied forces, how, how did they lose? I agree with Joseph P. Farrell. I've read all of his books and others. And the consensus is the Allies kind of won, sort of. Yeah, they won. The, the, the German state surrendered under General Yodel, but no Nazi party official ever signed off on a surrender. Right. You know, I believe that Hitler left the bunker and made it to Argentina. I don't think he'd lived very long. He was a broken man. He's on a cocktail of harsh drugs and he was a madman probably had other issues going on, maybe Parkinson's with the handshake. Um, no one's quite sure, there's no autopsy. But, you know, no Nazi party official, we know about the rat line through the Vatican and through Spain and into the U-boats and freighters and off to Argentina. And, you know, there are stories about Antarctica. They definitely went to Antarctica a lot, the Germans, since 1915. 
Everyone knows about the 39-38 expedition, which Rudolf Hess and, and Goering signed off on. They were like, hey, go there. Go find ruins of Atlantis or something. That's the story. Um, they, the SS were certainly involved in all that stuff because they knew it, it contained ancient technology, probably. You know, I mean, these stories sound fantastical until you start piecing the big picture together. And it took me 30 years to do that. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not easy at all. It, it, it's not meant to be easy. This, you know, when, the, when the Russian and Polish archives started opening them, and this is where Nick Cook found his information and Igor Watowski on the, the Wunderwaffe. That was astounding. We may never have learned, because in America we have the worst cover-up of all that World War II information. I went to the NASA archives in Maryland and, you know, trying to find stuff about Hans Kammler and everything. And there's just one page. Oh, he was a contractor. And, you know, I mean, everything's redacted. Right. Yes. My dad and I have done multiple FOIA requests on Paul Mellon. I've heard from all kinds of people. He has probably around 10,000 pages of OSS documents from the war. What's so secret about World War II that they refuse? And they refused my dad, who is, you know, had a high-level clearance. So what are they hiding? Well, you know, it's I funny because I'm talking about. Um, I'd like to gauge your opinion on this because Tom DeLonge said that he was told that World War II was an extraterrestrial war fought by humans. Would you agree with that? I think there's good evidence to suggest that if you go back in time, I think a lot of wars are proxy wars. The, the battle in, in, in the religious text between light and darkness, angels and demons. I mean, it's fairly clear. Um, the earth has been Grand Central Station for probably 12 billion years. I don't believe the 4 billion. Um, I have reason to believe that, but that's a long story, but it's much older than we're taught. History is a lie written by the winners. That I can tell you for sure. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous how the history books have been redacted and everything. And, and you know, all the books on Hitler are written by MI6, you know, guys like Hugh Trevor Roper. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous, the, the history we're taught. And um, that's really what got me on this road was, you know, everything is a lie. So, yeah, I think I think that uh, throughout history, every war, there are people with skin in the game. You know, if you get over that leap of faith, you know, that hump, I call it, you know, of disbelief, get over that. It's like, look, you know, Earth is a war prize. It's a garden planet. It's a school of hard knocks for the metaphysical uh, learning curves, you know, your higher self, your past lives, incarnations. It's, it's this many things, but it's a special place. And I think there's a reason we have 12 strands of DNA. I think that's on purpose. Apparently, that's unique. I don't know if it's unique in our galaxy or the universe, but it's said to be unique. And so, yeah, we are the probably, I think, we're the product of 22 different experiments back in the day before the Great Flood. Not just the Anunnaki, but you know, 21 other uh, ET races were like, hey, this sounds great, you know. And, um, you know, some people came to Earth, you know, 100,000 years ago, and they're like, Hey, let's do the llama. You know, let's create a hybrid llama and do the tulips in the Amazon, you know, or the orchids in the Amazon. Like, yeah, that's great. You know, and they hang out for a couple thousand years or a couple hundred years. They're like, oh, this was cool. We'll come back later. And they just split. 
they split town. And so, you know, all the megaliths all over the world, the pyramids, everything, you know, these were high civilizations all throughout history. And by all, all accounts, Atlantis was, man, people were coming and going all the time. People with different skin colors and this, that, and the other, people really tall, really short, you know. It, it's all there in the legends and history books. It all makes sense. But there was always wars. Always. You know, Lemuria and Atlantis were said to be at war. Atlantis had wars with the sons of Belial versus the children of the law of one. You know, I'm a I'm a devotee of hermetic law and the law of one. I, that makes sense to me. We're all one in the cosmos. Attack somebody, you're attacking yourself. You know, it's good luck trying to get, you know, generals and admirals on board with that. You know, hey, let me, can I read from you from the hermetica? Get away from me. You know, it's, it's fairly obvious once you've done the big picture work. That's what I, my specialty is. I'm not one of these gurus who has a, uh, you know, one of the messiahs in the UFO world, you know, the big people like Greer and others, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I take, I take everyone's perspective into consideration. So I cast a huge net as wide as I possibly can. Um, you know, and, and in the UFO community, it has its own caste system. Oh, I don't believe those people, you know, it's self fractured. It, it's got, uh, compartmentalization and, and uh, factions of its own. And that's why I came out uh, and did an interview with my friend, Eric Hecker, who's an ex U S Navy guy who's in, in Antarctica. And he and I have some things in common and uh, he thinks he's part of this covert secret space program and possibly the super soldier program. And those people get no love in the disclosure community. They're the pariahs. Everyone just shits on them. And it's like, they deserve a voice. Well, actually, that, that leads into something I wanted to ask you, because one person that you've mentioned in some of your interviews is Laura Eisenhower, the great-granddaughter of President Dwight Eisenhower. Um, now, as you pretty much just said, within the UFO community, um, you know, people like this, and especially, specifically, Laura Eisenhower, has been widely dismissed. People are very quick to say that she should not be taken seriously. I, like you, try to maintain an open mind, but um, what would you say to those within the UFO community who dismiss the opinions and claims of people like Laura Eisenhower? You know, I don't lecture anyone. I, I tell people, you know, trust your own mind, think for yourself. But I think everyone deserves to be listened to considered their stories, their, their wisdom, knowledge. I think, I think it's important to do that. You know, people can discern the law of discernment, which is a hermetic law. You have to discern all this stuff for yourself. The entire disclosure movement, that's a very personal thing to everyone. And so I, I think Laura's stories are, are worth a lot of consideration. As far as I know, I could be wrong, but she, myself, and Chris are the only committee of 300 family members involved in the disclosure. I, I don't know of anyone else. I, maybe someone out there can say, oh, I know somebody, a Rockefeller or somebody. I think Lawrence Rockefeller was. Yeah, he, he was involved with Greer. Greer and, yeah, that was that whole shit show with Podesta. Yeah, got, got the Clintons involved and things like that. Oh, no, that was that was a shit show. And, um, you know, it's not Greer's fault, but I, I believe you know, Greer, that they told him to shut up and it's not your, none of your business. And Greer stood up and says, it's my business. I live on this planet. You know, I have to live with everyone. Law of one. And so, you know, 
But the black hats in the room, you know, deep state folks, they didn't want this or none of this to come out. And so, you know, that's to my knowledge, that, that's all. The three of us, I, I could be wrong. I, I really don't know. I know I have four family members who are kind of, sort of interested in all this, but from more of a spiritual Carl Jung, you know, Atlantis kind of mystical side of it. Um, I'm more hardcore military historian. I like to, you know, that's where the space where I come from. But I try to really read a lot of philosophy and metaphysics because none of this is going to make sense. That's my other gentle advice to everyone is if you don't understand the metaphysics and philosophy that all these people were talking about through the ages, you're not going to really get the big picture understanding. The horror of it all will overwhelm you. I mean, people say, well, Warner's crazy. You know, even my friend, my friends are like, he's insane, but we love him anyway. You know, it's like, I have lost part of my sanity. Yeah. You damn skippy. I have, you know, anyone would, we're human beings. We're really creatures of love, forgiveness, and understanding and community. Not these, you know, at look at the ancients. I mean, we weren't created as this warrior race. I think we've been manipulated to become, you know, become warriors and we're good at it. We don't have the, you know, by all accounts, we don't have a good reputation out in the galaxy. And people are like, oh, earth humans, humans, you know, hands off. These well, guys. Are, you know. This is, uh, you know, it's something that I've said as well is that we're so far out of equilibrium with science and spirituality, physics, metaphysics, you know, we're, it's kind of like our technological progress is up here and then our spiritual and empathetic and philosophical progress is all the way down there. And, you know, we need to be operating at some level of symbiosis between these two things. And I do worry, especially as a young man looking forward as into the projection of where we're heading, you know, as a very technocratic species, uh, you know, whether or not we are too far gone to reclaim that spirituality. My, my personally, my only real hope is that through the medium of technology, quantum mechanics, quantum computing, all of these new emergent uh, studies and mediums, that we might be able to regain some level of spirituality through a scientific paradigm. Because it just kind of feels like we're never going to go back to kind of tribal nature, drinking ayahuasca in the middle of a jungle somewhere. Like as, as a general species, that's probably not the projection, <clears throat> sorry, probably not the direction we're heading in. But I, I, I have to feel like there's some level of hope that we can still regain that conscious aspect of our being. But maybe it will happen through some sort of scientific technological revolution that brings consciousness back into the conversation. What do you think? Uh, yes, but um, the technology that is in the deep state and the military industrial complex and all, and all, the, all that, the corporations, military contractors, that's all really neat stuff. Um, we're probably out in the galaxy with a space fleet. Secret spoke secret space program is most likely real. That's why they created the space force. Why did Trump pass the space mining bill? You know, these are all things you need to consider to sort of put this whole puzzle together. Um, and it's impossible to put the whole puzzle together, but you can try. I've tried. Um, spirituality and our ascension to higher levels of uh, dimensionality. And, uh, you know, that is probably our destiny. Uh, I think the people that, you know, creating hybrid races is no big deal. You know, that's a lot of people are like that. We'd be breed horses and dogs that way. You know, big deal. 
Um, everyone's a hybrid, you know, basically out there, here, everywhere. Um, the spirituality that we have, I think is growing, you know, they're just, you know, the, the great awakening is happening. I've seen progress over 30 years. My wife and I have had incidents of synchronicity all the time. Um, I had my friend's high school kids come up to me and they said, you know, what do you think about the secret space program? So and I said, well, think for yourself, you know, and, you know, it's a possibility we have to contend with. And so there are people waking up and it has to be, you know, the spiritual component of that is innate within us. So I've become more spiritual and I'm not a religious person. I didn't believe in any of that. I think religions are, you know, somewhat artificial. They, they have a lot of wisdom and history in them, but there's so much disinformation. You know, I think that probably, you know, they created religions, you know, whoever the, the controllers of the world in ancient times were like, oh, we need religions. You know, by all accounts, the Anunnaki created it. You know, they had a caste system, the Anunnaki kings. The, the lighter skinned people tended to the bed chambers and temples and kitchens. The brown people were the warriors and did some other chores. And then the darker skinned people did the hard, brutal work in the fields. And you could look that up. You know, and these people that, you know, that are our slaves, they need a religions, something that, you know, worship us as gods. But then it became, you know, by the Roman times, the monotheism became the, the cult of, you know, solar cults, Mithraism, you know, these all dovetailed into Christianity. And Constantine and the, the people in Istanbul, which is, you know, back then it was Constantinople, uh, they probably burned the Library of Alexandria and the Library of Apollo in Rome and said, oh, no, we're going to, you know, were there some ETs involved in that? Probably, you know. They probably look like us. I don't know, you know, who they were, but I, I strongly feel the Anunnaki were. <laughs> no, they never left. Everyone's like, oh, the Anunnaki left. No. I had an admiral once tell me that ETs, I said the word, I said to the Anunnaki, and he's like, well, I can't speak to that, but ETs walk the halls of the Pentagon every damn day. Every goddamn day, he said. Can, you say, which, can you say which admiral that was? Or, uh... No, I'm not going <laughs> to go there. Um, but, you know, that was probably, you know, 2000, 2002, somewhere in there. And I, I was like, yeah, I believe that. It's, it's not this big deal everyone thinks it is. Oh, my gosh, us versus them. We are all equal citizens of the cosmos. I truly believe that. You know, law of one, you know, hermetic law, you get into all that philosophy. But it, it's, you know, we're all different. And so, you know, I think ETs out there, by all accounts, they're, they're very neutral. They're like, you know, that's just a perspective. Good and evil, you know, yin and yang our duality as human be human beings. I mean, I struggle with my duality every day, you know, and this is like, you know, everyone's like, it's, it's the people versus the, you know, the Royals and the, and the 300 families and the deep state and the military. No, you know, a lot of those people believe in what I'm talking about. Um, they're just caught with, you know, national security contracts and death threats. Um, I've talked to some of these people. They're like, I wish I could do more, but they will, you know, I, I remember one congressman said, you know, look up the wood chipper scenario. This is in the 90s, I think. I said, what the fuck is that? And I talked to 
some of my intelligence people, they're like, yeah, when senators and congressmen, I don't know about today, but, but back then, the 90s and before that, they said if they dare interest themselves into you know, the black programs, unacknowledged special access programs, and they get too nosy, they're shown the wood chipper. You know, they, they come in the middle of the night, they put a bag over your head, inject you with something, take you out to some farm, and they, you know, there's 10 of you in a, in a line, and then they take the poor asshole down the end of the line, they put him through the wood chipper, and they smash everyone's face in the bloody goo. And said, you will not interest yourselves in our business anymore. You will Jesus. toe the line. You've been told that's, that's something that actually was told to you is real? That happened? Yeah. yeah. Wow. My dad and I was disgusted. He, you know, he said, you know, it's a tough world, son. You know, I don't care how much money people have. Uh, I don't care if you're a billionaire. You cannot shield yourself from the horrors of the world once you wake up to it. Uh, you're still beholden to you know, illness and, and uh, depression and everything, you know, there's no, you know, once you're starting to piece all this together and you're awake, there's no going back. Um, you know, my, my dad did a great thing. He, he took me with him all around the world and he didn't want me to be some rich candy ass kid. You know, he always said, got to work. I was always a workaholic like him. I always had a job. I was always doing something. I didn't want to be like the kids at the yacht club or the young people, you know, who only talk about yachts and golf and tennis and, you know, maybe, you know, how beautiful, you know, the queen's dress was that day at Ascot, you know, that's what these people talk about. You just don't talk about deep things. Most of them are just oblivious to everything. It's like what I wrote Jean-Luc, you know, they're asleep at the switch on the yacht. Oh, I have to varnish my yacht. You know, which, which color do you like? My God, I had um, a funny story. I was at the yacht club in Cape Cod one year before they threw me out. <laughs> Dress code violations, cussing. You know, I was not the sort. But I was married to another woman. You were too fun. Right, I was I'm married to my ex-wife. And she said, <laughs> oh, no, we have to be members of the yacht club. And, you know, So I was up there in Cape Cod, and this group of my friends were with some group of golfers, and they said, my God, how can you be into all these conspiracy theories and UFOs? Why can't you be like the rest of us and play golf and learn to, you know, do hedge funds stuff and fuck over the small people of the world? You know, basically. And I said, um, you know, I liked to play tennis back then. It was, it was actually good for your timing. But um, I hated golf. I think it's a stupid game, you know, men doing business deals and the deep state guys going, oh, we should, you know, implement this anti-gravity craft in Afghanistan all while playing golf. And I said to him, you know, and they, so they started laughing at me and everything. And, you know, always the butt of the joke. I'm like, that's fine. And then I went up to him. I said, tell me if I'm wrong. Golf, you use one. You, it takes one ball in golf. And they're like, yes, of course. And I'm like, as far as I know, being a pro racer, it takes two. So that shut him up. So I have little time for these snotty people who don't do any deep thinking or don't think for themselves. And I'm not saying that's everyone's fault, but people by and large are willfully ignorant. I had another friend, a close friend recently. He said, he said, I'm sure you're right about some of this stuff, you know, but I don't want to know. Ignorance is bliss. And I said, all right, buddy, ignorance is bliss, huh? Well, ignorance is stupid being stupid and arrogant. 
and that the bliss is temporary. So what good is it? He's like, I don't care. He, you know, slugs down uh, 10 whiskeys. You know, it, people are willfully ignorant. And that's what, you know, you can't red pill people. They have to be in the, in the process themselves. And this gets into soul contracts and metaphysics and reincarnational lives. You know, you, oh, what, you know, the tick the option boxes, like you're at a car dealership. Oh, what should I do in this next life? Oh, I, want, I want to do this and this. And I can see myself checking all the boxes. And, you know, oh, yeah, I want a spine full of titanium. And oh, I want to go through all that, you know. But other people are like, nah, I'm going to hang out in the Bahamas and read books and drink, and drink rum drinks. But freedom still, freedom you know, of will, yeah. <laughs> right. But they're still doing their jobs if they incarnate on Earth, according to, to all the philosophers and everybody, because you are of the light, um, if, unless you want to be you know, in the darkness, which is totally fine. You know, go do your thing, Mr. Hitler and you know, Stalin. But if you want to just hang out, you know, you're still doing your job at sort of raising the vibration of the planet. You know, our heart chakras are connected to Mother Earth. And so that's kind of it gets into why um, Earth has been this very popular place for people to come and conquer and war and, you know, and do all this thing is because as human beings, uh, we have a very powerful heart chakra that's connected to Mother Earth. Now, that's something you can drill down on in metaphysics, but um, <laughs> I'm trying to do better. You know, <laughs> you know, I can't just, yeah, Nazi anti-gravity weapons with atomic... You know. You can't just do that. You have to understand that side of it. So, you know, all the pretty women on YouTube doing, well, you know, here's what we do today at our heart chakras and crystals. And that's all very important stuff. But it's not my purview <laughs> per se, you know. But I tried to understand it and consider it. And I was like, all oh, these crystal hippies, you know, God damn it, you know, they're idiots. And then I'm like, whoops, you know, they've got a point. Because all this high tech in the military industrial complex, it is crystal based. I don't know if you've heard of the rectangle they found uh, on one of these crashed UFOs sometime. I think it was you know, 40, 50 years ago. And they couldn't figure out what it, what it was. And they put it on a shelf. You know? And then one day, some clever guy was like attached something to it to do a power drain. And it was like, whoa, the whole building lit up. And this thing is a free energy device that's this small. Yeah, I think that's the one that uh, Stephen Greer mentioned. Yeah, it's that, all uh, crystal. Be... Yeah, it's all crystal yeah. based technology. And so this gets into the vacuum of space time and, and torsion fields and all that good stuff. And um, oh, I wanted, you know, as far as um, the Sufi wisdom and Gurdjieff, George Gurdjieff, what he found was very interesting in his books when he went to visit the Sarmoon in Afghanistan. And that was the whirling dervishes. And I write about this in my new book. The whirling dervishes. Somehow that Sufism mystery school figured out, ooh, if we can train ourselves to dance for 24 hours or whatever it is without getting sick or dizzy, and it takes years, a lifetime to develop, they create a torsion field in the brain. And so that allows the pineal gland to activate through what you know, Rudolf Steiner and everyone is calling the eighth sphere of reality, which is our false control system on the planet, which has to exist because there's no way they can get away with all this stuff for thousands of years without it it's just logic and so you know i've got my character beatrice and she's you know fighting a war she's like oh, george gurdjieff comes to her in a microsecond and says you know whirling dervish you idiot and so she applies that 
you know, she's kind of a, a fuck up and, and, and an idiot, but she, she applies that. And they were able, it's a high performance meditation. And so they're, they're dancing in front of all the kings and, you know, the potentates throughout history, these whirling dervishes, but they're connecting with the universal consciousness. Ha ha, guess what we're doing? And so they found a way around. There's always a workaround in life. I think in the universe, there's always a workaround. Oh, we got a problem. It's impossible. The word impossible is, was probably given to us by some nefarious group. Yeah. It doesn't have, nothing is impossible in the universe. Even my own I friend, you know, when we talk about stuff, he's like, yeah, everything's possible. There's no impossibility of anything which is why it's so sad to see everyone arguing in the disclosure movement. They're at each other's throats. You know, you know, I, you guys found me, I really wasn't going to come out to anybody, but you know, I, John Luke and I shoot the breeze and I thought, Oh, this is synchronicity. I'm going to go with this. My wife and I had talked about it for a long time, you know, because, you know, I'm nobody really important in the scheme of things, but you know, I just have a weird family story to tell um, in conjunction with all this new knowledge. Well, I have to admit that, um, and I've said this in our three-part series, and for everyone listening, by the way, I'll link that in the description box below. So if you haven't checked that out, I'd recommend checking that out because we do go through quite a lot of different things uh, regarding your book and obviously the emails you sent. But um, yeah, no, that, that's that's something that I was... Uh, oh God, I've completely forgotten my train of thought then. I had a really nice point that I wanted to nail down. You know, and it's just psychically gone... connect with you. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, what were you saying? I don't know, something about the emails of John Luke. No, uh, you were saying something. I've completely you know Luke what? Picard of Star Trek. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I have completely forgotten. I'm maybe all right, I'm gonna try and remember it. But what I would like to segue into just real quick, um, especially just in regards to kind of present day discussions. I'm listening. Yeah, no worries. Um, because a tangible connection to the modern day UFO or UAP transparency efforts is your third cousin, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, Christopher Mellon. Now, Chris played an integral role in the dislodging and dissemination of the now famous Navy videos that captured the uh, unidentified aerial phenomena during naval training exercises. He's worked with the New York Times in order to push this information out into the mainstream, and he was a member of Tudor Stars Academy of Arts and Science. He's since left his role within TTSA, and we can get into uh, some of the possible reasons for that in a moment. But first of all, um, you've called him a dear friend, so is it fair to say that you and Christopher are close? We're not super close, but we've known each other. We went to camp together in 1973, so we've known each other for a long time. And I would see him here and there. I knew his, his brother, who's now passed away, Matthew, a little better. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Chris and I have had conversations. Uh, he came to my farm. We had a great five-hour conversation over a couple of scotches, you know. And I know his family. I went to the Mellon reunion uh, a few years ago with my wife. Uh, there she is. Come, come say hi to Jay. Hey, Jay, how are you? Hey, uh, how you doing? There's <laughs> nice the brains of the operation right there. She's smarter than I am. <laughs> Always good to have you. a spouse or, or, you know, a wife that's smarter than you. you know? Absolutely. Yeah. That's my gentle advice to you as a young man. I'm just here to support him. There you oh. go. <laughs> <laughs> We're up in the morning discussing all this. <laughs> Lovely to see you. Secret. Don't tell him our secrets. So, no, no. Well, nice meeting you anyway. Yeah, you, know, you too. Chris, I mean, you know, uh, you know, here's the thing. My dad uh, and Stephen Greer with his comment about my father and Chris Mellon coming forward with Lou Elizondo publicly four years ago. Um, 
that made disclosure my business. You know, my wife and I are very private people. Um, we like to mingle with all kinds of people. I, I, I enjoy, we have pretty quiet life, really. Um, and I like Chris, you know, I've know, I've met his family. Uh, he's a great family man. Um, my opinion, and I don't know Lou Elizondo, but my, my friend, Captain Daniel Cross, you know, retired, he knows Lou. And so we had a good conversation about Lou. And so my opinion is they are on the opposite end of, they are in the disclosure movement because they, they brought this topic alive. It was completely dead. No one was really listening to anything about UFOs, not in the mainstream public. And all of a sudden, in 2017, they brought that footage out. And so they continue, Chris continues to write articles in the Washington Post or the Times, you know, New York Times or the Hill and wherever else. And they keep that on the boil. So I commend them for that. I really do. And I told Chris that. And, you know, it, our conversation is private. But what I can tell you is that, uh, you know, he's like, oh, you and Tom DeLong are into the wild stuff. And I said, I don't know Tom DeLong. You know, he seems like a nice guy. His heart's in the right place. You know, I don't know about the skateboard thing, but whatever, man. You know, um, and I said, such an odd choice for all you, you know, Jim Semi man, Hal Putoff, and, you know, all these guys who are, you know, insiders and spooks and, and you know, and he's like, oh, well, he was our front man and we're trying to get the youth of, you know, younger people involved and you know, trying to lighten up their image of this thing. And I said, I can understand that. It's still really a goofy thing. Why didn't you call me? And I could have advised you on something a little different. But, um, you know, I'm like, Chris, if you don't understand some of the wild stuff, why are you with Tom DeLong? And he's talking about the wild stuff. And I think, you know, he's like, he's their front man. You know, a lot of the disparaging th people will call him a useful idiot, which is an Intel term. Um, I don't know about that. I don't know Tom. I've never met him. But, um, you know, his free, free Masonic symbols on his guitar and other things, you know, his book with Peter Lavenda, The Secret Machines, that was very mild stuff. Uh, my books hit the nail really hard. I mean, I don't hold back. Um, that's just me. Um, so, you know, I sat down and I explained how a black triangle, the TR3B or the new G model, you know, these are old stuff from the eighties that we have flying around and they're going to soon let that, let that out in the space force as part of low level disclosure. Have you been told so, that? Yeah. No big deal. Anti-gravity. It's not that hard once you know the trick. You know, and people invent anti-gravity toys all the time on YouTube, and then they get a knock on the door and say, well, we, Boeing owns the patents to free energy, buddy. You know, it's, it's an inside joke. All the insiders are laughing, everybody. You know, we're still debating anti-gravity. It's like ridiculous. And the ancients had it. You know, they, we've probably always had it on Earth in one form or another. You know, it's not that big a deal. The big deal is what constitutes the wild stuff that Chris and I were talking about. And I sat down, I just drew him the TR3B. Here's the plasma ring, it's carbon fiber, titanium. You know, the, the maneuvering nodes are, you know, there's hexagonal sacred geometry in there. And, you know, the maneuvering nodes use a, a powdered quartz and ballistic glass, you know, with monotonic gold on one side and lead insulator, and they do high voltage. You get a torsion field on three nodes and it maneuvers beautifully. Seven minutes from ground level to the moon. Big deal. 
you know, this is not the big deal stuff. The hardware that everyone, oh, I, American Airlines, we saw a UFO the other day. It was shaped like a hot dog with mustard. Now, the hardware is not an issue. You know, it's what are they, you know, Chris and, and, and Lou are gatekeepers. And I said, man, I know, I know you're on a short leash. I didn't mean that as, as a disparaging comment. I said, I know you're beholden to national security stuff, you know, but come on. Even if 5% of the wild stuff, the dark stuff, you know, the wild stuff is true, it's astounding. But it's also horrifying because you've got my labs and abductions and, you know, all these people are insane. Oh, I was abducted and you know, all these grays and there was a manted being and a German, you know, you know, in a black leather coat. I mean, Barney and Betty Hill said that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous that we're still talking about this childish shit. And he's like, you know, oh, no, you know, you know, we got up, you know, the American people will panic. American people will panic. And I said, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of American people, blue collar, middle class, rich people. doesn't matter. The American people aren't stupid. They may be ignorant at, by design, but they're not stupid. Yeah, a lot of people will panic and freak out. You know, their religious beliefs and everything like that will be challenged. No, look at 9-11. That brought America together. Whoever was responsible for 9-11, some faction within the deep state, you know, arguing with another faction, you know, look what we can do if you disclose something, buddy. Something like that probably happened. American people didn't become afraid. It galvanized this country. I was down in, in, in Georgia filming my a documentary film. Uh, and I remember a big dually pickup truck, you know, exhaust stacks and twin turbos and everything. And it had a big stars and bars on the back of it. And, you know, God guns and country and everything. I, and it had a homemade sticker on the back that says, we love New York. Now, as a Southerner, I can tell you that most Southern people don't like carpetbaggers, you know, Northeast intelligentsia and New Yorkers and all the, you know. But they did after 9-11. We were all one, except for the black hats in some you know, faction somewhere. I saw that, and that brought me to tears. And my producer was with me. She was a wonderful Southern woman. And it, we brought us, because she, she and I knew that he meant it. You know, and he's got a gun rack with assault rifles and, you know. You know and this, this is what the South, you know, a lot of the people down there, you know, they're all about. God, guns, and country, and, you know, God damn it, don't don't mess with us, you know? And so that really left an impression on me. Um, and so it's the same with UFO disclosure. You know, the people of the world, American, I can only speak for Americans. I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm world traveled, but I don't know a lot of foreign people. I wish I did. Um, but I know a few, um, by and large, people can handle this stuff. We've been through world war II, the Holocaust, Vietnam was horrifying. Um, you know, missing in action. Where are the missing people? You know, is that related to my labs? Are people being abducted, you know, en masse? I believe there's truth to that. So I think that's part of the wild stuff that, you know, Chris and Lou, you know, I appreciate what they're doing, but they're slow rolling disclosure in my view. I don't speak for them. I, I speak only for myself. And while I understand they're cautionary, but this is ridiculous because they're being, they're slowly being the disclosure movements moving past all that. I, I agree with Richard Dolan when he said that 
Chris Mellon and, and Lou, they're just moving the goalposts further down the line. And so they're creating this new space of disclosure that's really not. And so, you know, though I am friends with Chris, you know, I disagree with his, his program. Uh, they are lying by omission. The Navy doesn't, it's not a mystery. The Navy knows what that is. They test uh, secret craft all the time with the other branches of the military. And they're like, oh my God, a UFO. And it's our stuff. People are like, oh, that's impossible. You know, they think we have a few weapons in the U.S. Space Force. And it's like, no, you know, I, I believe we're way out in the galaxy. And that suggests Stargate travel and transdimensional, you know, space travel is time travel. It's part and parcel. So DARPA, time travel stories, MKUltra, Montauk Project, you know, it lends credibility to that when I see this stuff. Because I understand they're scared to death of all this stuff getting out, whatever the truth is. Well, it's funny, it's funny you mentioned the time travel thing. I mean, something that you mentioned in one of your emails to Jean-Luc was the TV series Dark and how it was based on Project Montauk and the link to Brookhaven Labs, going on to say that um, Brookhaven was a U.S. Air Force time tunnel testing facility. Now, I have an intelligence source who has operated on behalf of the NSA and also the National Air and Space Intelligence Center. He was also an intelligence consultant on all three seasons of Dark. And when I asked him if you were correct regarding Brookhaven and Project Montauk, he confirmed that you were. He also said to me um, a few times now that the 19, I think it was the 1950s, uh, the, the supposed agreements between select members of the US military and the ET race that we call Ebens were real, that those meetings did take place, that these agreements involved the exchange of technological assets with applications in time travel. Um, I've also been told by him that there are, to their knowledge, three converging human timelines and that some of the ETs are actually human beings from separate timelines and that the splitting of the atom was the catalyst that ushered them in, that we essentially converged with other timelines due to splitting the atom. Have you ever had that type of narrative explained to you by intelligence community folks or, or anyone? I, I didn't need them to do that. I knew it on my own from my own research. Remember, Dr. Oppenheimer, World War II, after they dropped the the bomb on Japan, he said, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's from the Vedic texts. Yeah. yeah. There's strong evidence in, in the Mohenjo-Daro in, in, in India of you know, melted glass and, and melted stone from high heat explosions. And so I think it's obvious that atomic weapons have been used, sadly, all throughout human history, going way back. And so the, what Oppenheimer knew, and I write about this in my new book, uh, when you let off a, an atomic device, it not only affects the local battlefield at hand, but it cuts through the fourth and into right. the fifth dimension, creating billions of additional casualties. That's why in World War II, all of a sudden the Foo Fighters, and there was increased UFO traffic and visitation is because they were like, shit, Somebody's taught them, taught the human race how to do the atomic device. And of course, the Nazi SS had the Vedic texts. I write about this too. The, the uh, Kang Shur from Tibet, the Vedic texts, which are hard to decipher. But once you know some of the tricks, um, you can start making atomic, atomic weapons. And so that's the problem. I think, I think Majestic 12 and Ike were told this by Oppenheimer and others. It's like, listen. Every time you let off a hydrogen bomb, you're just not killing people on a Pacific Island. 
you're killing people you can't see that live on this damn planet too. I mean, if that's and true, I, you think about how many tests we have done over time, like not just America, but Russia and China, like, you know, there's so many. It's disgusting. Yeah. And I grew up in an era, um, I'm a baby boomer. You know, I was born in 1962 and I had nuclear nightmares all throughout childhood. Wow. We used to do the, you know, the duck and cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's disgusting. And, you know, I think MJ-12 and, and the Black Hats and the military industrial complex just said, ah, fuck it. You know, we'll just do whatever we want. National security, national security, national security. We need to fight the Soviets. And the Cold War was all bullshit. On the deeper levels, we were always working with the Soviets. It's a joke. You know, I knew that in the 80s. I was a Russian history member. My, my advisor was Russian. And he's like, I used to be in the military, you know, you know, we've been working with the Americans on the, on the above top secret stuff on the down low while the Cold War is fought by these generals and admirals and, and others that are like, oh, my God, the Russians, you know, they've invaded Afghanistan. You know, that was all semi-real, but it was also a dog and pony show. You know? I want to finish this off with a few questions regarding the upcoming book, Lion, Tiger, Bear, because you said that Little Anton contains disclosure within its pages, but you have also said that this is, uh, you know, that this is being taken over even further with Lion, Tiger, Bear. Uh, what's the overall narrative of this next book, and why do you feel it's even more explosive than Little Anton, which contains some pretty intense information? I mean, without obviously giving away too much, but what's coming with the next book? Well. Little Anton is a very long juggernaut of a book. It I sure admit, is. <laughs> um, it's too long, but, you know, I just thumb through it. <laughs> thumb through the deal. Oh, I'm enjoying it. Don't worry. I am very much enjoying it. Everyone, you know, people use it as a doorstop, my friends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, but it's, you know, I sent you infamous chapter 108. It's really 109 in the book. But, you know, Little Anton has disclosure in a 1930s setting. So it's not all the stuff we know today. You know, B is getting a, a briefing from her MI6 boss because he's a mystic and he's kind of pieced it all together, you know, in, in a 1938 style version. And so little Anton has some disclosure, but, you know, for people in the disclosure movement, it's not going to be that much. It's, it's the other people who are just sort of coming online. But in the next book, I come right out of the starting gate. It hits you hard. Um, it dives deeper into the occult. Um, much of it is very dark, but it's still funny, and there's a satire going on. B and her zany gang. But there are some very, very dark moments. And um, they get directly into, you know, the Anunnaki SS and their work in the Middle East. And they, you know, it gets more into the anti-gravity program that the Germans probably were doing. And the book takes place in 1942. And so... You know, it's not the end of the war where they were, you know, probably experimenting by, you know, using discs and trying to make them into weapons, which wouldn't work because the space-time bubble, the electromagnetic plasma bubble becomes unstable if you shoot a recoil weapon. That's why we develop directed energy weapons and scalar weapons, because that's all you can use off of an anti-gravity craft. Um, and so it gets into all that, um, much deeper into all that. And... So it's it's going to be a wild ride. Yeah, I, I love the it's way shorter. 
<laughs> it's shorter a lot shorter yeah disclaimer everyone it's a lot shorter but you know i I have to admit just just talking about little anton real quick i love how sneaky you are with it because there is literally nothing on the front cover or the blurb like the description you pick that up from a on a bookshelf and you just be like oh this is about you know porsche and world war ii and espionage but there's no suggestion of what you find inside the pages which i actually think is a really clever way of doing it and i actually remember what i forgot when i was trying to figure out what i was going to say to you before and i completely blanked on it what i was going to say was um one of the things i really appreciated about how we found you or how jean found you was that you're not advertising yourself to the ufo community you're not on gaia tv you know going i've got the answers you need to read my book it's very nuanced you've just put it within this you know book that if you picked it up off the shelf you wouldn't really think that it was going to contain this stuff and i think that you know at least at least from like a ego perspective i think that that definitely speaks to your character because you're not trying to push this out and say that you've got the answers but you genuinely do believe this stuff you think that this is probably the best representation of the you know reality around ufos and, and ancient societies and um yeah i just i just i think that's a really clever way of doing it you've kind of you know sneakily put it out there <laughs> i mean i started writing i i had three back operations titanium in my spine holding it together and right around let's see uh ah, probably 2007 i started uh, a friend of mine said listen idiot buy a laptop teach yourself to write and write a book and i said ah it sounds boring and he said what are you what else are you doing You're lying around in pain you know just do it and so i did it and um i was going through you know physical rehabilitation for my back and everything. And it was painful, but the interesting thing about, I haven't written anything since high school. And so I was, I think it was eight, 48 at the time, I think about 11 years ago. And so I wrote a little bit and I started reading, reading Winston Churchill and writing and everything like that I basically taught myself to write um, because there was nothing else to do. Um, I could research a little bit and read a few, you know, interesting history books. And, and but I always wanted to do something about world war two. And because the, Grand Prix story of Germany in the 1930s, Auto Union versus Mercedes, the silver arrows, the silver fish. That was a big deal back then. Formula One today owes its roots to the Grand Prix, European Grand Prix in the 30s. And so I had this interesting, fun novel I was going to write about a girl spy and uh, who gets involved with Ferdinand Porsche and, you know, that whole racing program. But I was writing the book. I was researching more into the disclosure movement and UFOs and, and alien life and ancient history, you know, and, and I thought, you know, I'm going to weave some of this <laughs> into this book. And, you know, my editor and I went back and forth, you know, that's why we split it into three separate books. There's no way to, it's an epic story. Um, so it's really three books in one, but I thought I'd weave some of that in there when it was appropriate. And, you know, Porsche was into high technology and, and secret programs. Um, and so it just naturally wove, I wove it into the narrative, but I didn't think it was a big deal. I just thought, you know, most people being interested in my book were, you know, gearheads and racing people, you know. Um, I didn't think anybody was going to like it, you know, for any of the other stuff. Were, Who's it? What's the Anunnaki? What is this? <laughs> oh, one. What the fuck is that? You know, my friends are like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. And it's like, I have to explain. They still don't get it. But you and John Luke and John do. And so you're the first people that 
you know, John Luke got a hold of it and read some of it. And I sent him some chapters, some zesty chapters, <laughs> you know, and, you know, I sort of just cobbled together a website and, you know, did a little bit of marketing with a publicist and, you know, but, you know, I, I don't take money for my work. I never have. Uh, even my documentary films, I donated all that to Pr Yellow Ribbon Fund to give all my uh, films to uh, the troops. Back then, 2004, I sent them to the uh, troops. And I work with wounded veterans at my farm twice a year with a, a deer hunt that they do. Um, so I, that's another place where I talk about Afghanistan. It's these wounded veterans that tell me about some of that stuff. They're like, you know, I, I shouldn't tell you this, but, you know, and it gets into those narratives. Um, but I didn't really, you know, you went, little Anton has a little bit of everything for everybody. Some people just like the love story. Some people like the, the Nazis and the occult and the SS. Some people like the racing stuff. Some people like all the above, but it's, it's a tough read and um, it's not for everyone. Um, you know, my editor, you're insane. You know, a thousand page book is my first book. <laughs> I said, Hey man, I, I cut 300 pages out of it. Oh my God. It, it was 1300 pages. Wow. And there are novels that are much longer. I mean, you know, it's just, that's why I put it in a box set of three books. Yeah. It's a beautiful um, box. You set. could just, people can just skim through it and read, you know, some of the fun chapters with B and her girlfriends and all the silly stuff. But it's, uh, I, my second book, you know, I get, I delve deep, into the Foo Fighters and, and FDR's programs and Doolittle and those kinds of narratives. I, I, it's, it's World War II history, I totally believe. Um, and the occult stuff, you know, my character Bernie gets way into that. And uh, they have their own sort of World War II awakening to the, you know, some, a lot of the darkness, the true, you know, history of the world in the occult. And how that weaves itself, you know, wars are just a mass death ritual, I believe. Now, Alistair Crowley's in there, you know, because he would brief Churchill. And, uh, you know, so that's all interesting, you know, for a lot of people, they're going to be like, oh, the, you know, he's made all this stuff up. And I, I didn't, actually. Uh, it's what I believe to be true. Well, the publicly available chapter of, of your upcoming book, which is on your website, again, to everyone listening, links will be in the description box below. So you can go on to John's website and check out the chapter of Lion, Tiger, Bear that's available. But this one involves a closed door meeting between Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt and General George Marshall, wherein they discuss not only the real time issues of World War II um, that were unraveling at that time, but they kind of proceed to delve into lost ancient history and the existence of the infamous gray alien. I have to ask if this is um, purely a fictional scenario or have you been told certain things that culminated into you writing about this secret discussion between these gentlemen? I believe it took place. They were all Freemasons. Right. They were, they were 30, 33rd degree or higher. And so they knew some of the esoteric truth of the world, Atlantis, high civilizations that were pre-Diluvian you know, so they had some education, you know, that's, I'm fully convinced of that. Um, the word is, you know, Forrestal witnessed a uh, UFO crash in Missouri in 1942. There were other crashes around the United States, it, the 1920s, the 30s, in Germany, in America, all over the world, you know, this stuff was happening. And they were starting to try to understand this technology. The Germans were way ahead by all accounts which is why they were so way ahead. You know, they're good engineers and they're, they have a lot of technical schools, but 
but come on. Um, I think it makes sense. They did. And so the word is Forstall saw the crash and he saw not only the ET bodies, but also human body parts in some sort of gel. And, you know, he being a very religious man, he really freaked out about that. And that's why he later on was going to disclose this on his own. And of course, I think he was, you know, pushed out of a window or jumped out himself under duress. And so Forrestal, in fact, there was a movie my wife and I just saw last night, and I recommend it to people. It's called The Eleventh Green. It's fantastic film. Fantastic yeah. film. It's a little mild for me, but it's not bad. I just love and the way they did it because it's not like typical UFO film. It's like it's almost like an indie art house style film, and some of the stuff that they talk about is just so interesting. Yeah, they show the they show the hard knocks and the pushback by you know military personnel that are in the deep state and others. It's like keep quiet or we're gonna fucking kill you, you know. And that that was reality. Uh, it may still be reality for people. If you sign a national security contract, you know they have the. It says in it they have the right to terminate with extreme prejudice. I mean, it's there. People know it, but there are people that come forward anyway. So I think the film is good. Uh, they obviously didn't tell the other parts about the Eisenhower met with three races of ETs. They didn't show that. They just showed the kind blind, uh, a blonde Nordic guy, you know, looked like Jesus or whoever. And so, you know, this gets into holographic technology and, you know, ET's deceptions and, you know, contracts and agreements in the universe are, are taken very seriously. And so, as they are down here, you sign a contract, you honor it. And there's ways to, you know, like the mafia to manipulate. Here's, here's a deal you can't refuse. And I think Ike got a, a Hobson's choice, you know. We'll help you with your spirituality if you do us some favors, or we'll help you with your military technology if you do us some favors. But really, you know, the three groups, you know, I've heard they were kind of working with each other in the down low. And so he may not have had any choice at all. Whether a truly benevolent race, you know, help, probably, you know, said, you know, we'll help you, you know. And they were like, nah, we'll take the weapons. And so that's the, that's the United States. I mean, we, war and arming for war is our day job. That is the majority of the gross domestic product in this country is military. And I think our budget, uh, our yearly budget, is in the many trillions, not the 1.5 that it's on public. And the, and the black, you know, the black fund that they pass in Congress that my father passed, that's a drop in the bucket. Well, that's no. the thing, isn't it? You know, people are wondering and postulating on negative ETs and, and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, we're, we're pretty fucked up ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, if to, to other species, no. we would be ETs, and we seem like pretty malevolent ETs to some extent, yeah. you know? Like, no, I, I make this clear in, in my book that I'm writing. We are all responsible. And everyone's like sitting back in their chairs and going, oh, the deep state and the people, I hate them. And it's like, you know, there are those of us who remain willfully ignorant and we vote for these people. You know, it's done legally. And so everyone has bloods on their hands, everyone. If you do banking, you have 500 you know, pounds sterling in the bank and you're earning interest on that. That's no different than a billionaire earning, you know, untold amount of money, you know, in their investment accounts because you're part of this 
Babylonian Sumerian money banking system. Sorry, you know, we, we all are one and we are all culpable in a sense. And then we, it's easy to point your fingers, you know, this is the hard part is that, you know, I hate a lot of people. I, I really do. I'm trying not to hate anyone, but I still, you know, these people who are really in the, the horrible Epstein human trafficking angle of this whole thing, you know, those are despicable, disgusting people. But I'm telling you, we are, if you get down to brass tacks, we are all culpable for this. I mean, they are our brothers and sisters who do this. You know, in the law of one, you know, our duality, you can't point fingers. You know, they did it. It was them. You know, you can't do that. Why is it that, you know, one, one friend of mine said to me, how do you know all this stuff? I said, with respect, how is it that you do not know? And he just shook his head and he says, I don't believe any of this crap you're telling. I'm like, that's fine. You know, but consider, you know, and then when Chris Mellon and the Epstein was arrested, he was like, wow, you had a point. There are some weird things going on, you know? So. It seems highly unlikely to me that every single shred of intelligence that's been gathered by the US government and other powerful governments and institutions will ever really be publicly disseminated. But um, what do you personally feel is necessary for there to be a full disclosure of the UFO issue? Is it, is it even possible for there to be a full disclosure? Full disclosure will only come from the ordinary people of the world. The military, industrial, intelligence, corporate complex in, in whatever country, they will never, ever, ever reveal the full truth. Ever. They can't. However, it is my personal view that Chris and Lou Elizondo represent a series of factions that said we've got to do something. Because there's a lot of people, they're good people in the military. It's good to, you know. I have problems with duality myself, yin and yang, but you know, they want disclosure, but not all of it. They want, you know, discussion of the secret space program and the ET visitation and things like that. But if the wild stuff, if a lot of that's true, they don't want that to ever come out because then everyone's tainted with blood. But I'm telling you, we're all culpable because these are our brothers, sisters, cousins, you know, that work for these, you know, inside and the military personnel, you know, we're all in there together, whether we like it or not. And so that's why, you know, I told my wife, I said, I've got to say something, you know, Chris and Lou are up there, you know, saying nothing burgers. And I can't stand that. You know, U.S. Navy knows exactly who's coming in and out of our atmosphere. This gets into my discussion with my best friend, Captain Daniel Cross. He just retired from the ONI after 30 years. And I said, you know, I know you're under national security contract, once Intel, always Intel. Well, we shared a bottle of wine, a steaks. And I said, you know, what can you tell me? I said, what about the satellites? And he said, oh yeah, I can tell you all about that. You know, the US, Force, US Air Force has their own two man satellites. They're manned. They're replenished by the B-2 stealth bomber because it's anti-gravitics and it's wings. It's, it's orbitable capable. And, um, you know, the Navy has theirs too. And I said, well, how, you know, is it neutrino tracking, scalar? And he's like, well, I can't get into the details, but we can track those bastards 
punching in and out superluminal anytime, day or night, and we could track them 25 miles under the earth or the ocean. Wow. Now, superluminal is beyond the speed of light. So I thought we were talking, you know, the three holy cows of academia are, we, you know, we evolved from apes. Nothing can go beyond the speed of light. Thank you, Einstein. Why? And that, you know, matter cannot be created and destroyed. Matter can be created with consciousness. And they know that in the programs. Oh, boy. That's what all this remote viewing stuff, that's bigger than people think. And so, you know, I talked to him about that. And he's like, yeah, there's something to that. And I, I can't talk about that. But, you know, I started to tell him, you know, what about all this banking fraud and, and the movement of drugs by Black Triangle craft, you know, optical invisibility, the F-35 fighter and the hat trick, you know, that's its hat trick, optical invisibility. And he's like, yeah, you know, but I, he's like, I have never heard of the, the drug thing. And I said, well, the CIA just came out with a Tom Cruise movie and it's like, ha, ha, ha. You know, we've been, you know, of course we are in the drug business. You know, it's all CIA. And he's like, well, yeah, I can't talk about funding streams, but, you know, wink, wink, you know, I, smiling while he's cutting into a steak and drinking more wine. I'm like, have more wine. <laughs> you know, and in so, vino veritas. <laughs> and then our next dinner was with dad. And he's like, you know, dad's 94 now, but he's still kicking, you know. He's like, you two got to figure out this damn UFO problem with Chris. And, you know, I'm like, I've tried. You know, Daniel's like, I can't get involved, you know. And so, you know, I urge Chris and Lou, they probably will never watch this, but, you know. Well, Christopher Mellon follows me on Twitter, so he might. (laughs) But I think their hands are tied. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, but, you know, I'll I'll be very clear with my words. You know, I... You know, this is nothing personal. It's just business. But when he, when they get up there and say, oh, it's all a mystery and, you know, gosh, you know, the, the Navy pilots, who knows what's out there? They're lying by omission. And that's why I'm talking with you today. Because I told my wife, I cannot stay silent when my cousin is out there, you know, my friend, and he's not telling the whole truth. Maybe that was their plan. Ooh, their crazy cousin, you know, Johnny will come out and him and Tom DeLong smoke pot and get into the wild stuff. <laughs> you know, it's disclosures never going to come from the government. Oh, the government's useless. Capitol Hill, all those idiots. They're, they're, they barely know anything anyway. It's only like people like my dad and certain other key members that were read in on a tiny bit of it. You know, not the full Monty. The full Monty's only going to come from the people. We have to demand it. And, you know, I'm all for peaceful demonstrations. They should occupy CIA, Langley over here. And they should occupy Lockheed Martin, Boeing Defense, Sandia Labs, Los Alamos Labs. That's what people need to do. I was so proud of those people who were going to storm Area 51. Yeah, it didn't didn't turn out too well, but... Everything's moved to Tonopah, so they'll open. Yeah, heard they're going to open Area 51 and go, look, a museum. Here's one UFO. Yeah, everyone back to work, back to school. We've got it all under control. You know, and the factions are all fighting. They always have been. I want to thank you for, for taking so much time to sit down and speak with me. Honestly, I think 
you and I could go on for hours, but it is actually approaching midnight here. So we do need to cut this off at some point. And I think you've been extremely forthcoming. Um, let me just say that I would welcome you back onto my platform anytime in the future if you ever want to discuss things further. But for now, uh, I would just like to say thank you for being here. And is there anything you want to say to those listening before we wrap this up? I'd just like to say once more, you know, everyone's truth is going to be different. Everyone's perspective is different. Um, I urge people to consider everyone in this game, this field, this hobby, if you want. You know, um, I believe personally that everyone has a valuable perspective. And so, you know, all this weird esoteric stuff and, you know, it's all connected because everything is connected. Synchronicity, all points of space and time are connected. And so, you know, it's not easy. You know, I'm still learning every day, every day. I turn away a lot of information. I, I know it, but, you know, I, I want to hear people's perspective. You know, that's why I liked you and John and, and John Luke. You were just shooting the breeze, you know, but you're all really smart. You know, and people as, as your age, 28, 26, you said? 26, yeah. Shit. When I was 26, I didn't have anything on the ball. I was, you know. Screwing around, you know, the young people of today, I'm so impressed with them.